progress. It's in the actions we take right now and in daring to think differently. Each one of us can do something to change things for the better, right where we are now. And a thousand small things done with intent adds up to real change. For some people, that initial spark becomes a fire. Welcome to the Every Woman Changemakers podcast. I'm Anna, your host, and every month I'll be talking to inspiring leaders and activists who are changing outlooks, challenging perceptions, and making a difference in the worlds of inclusion, business, the environment, sport, travel, and more. We'll be discussing their work, motivations, and vision, and most importantly, how a revolution of one can lead to a positive, powerful change for the many. Today, we're talking to Adrienne Burgess, Joint Chief Executive and Head of Research at the Fatherhood Institute, the UK's fatherhood think tank, whose work focuses on policy, research and practice, and looks into the role of fathers and the context within which fatherhood operates in the modern world, and also the implications for supported healthy fatherhood on gender equality. So welcome, Adrienne. Lovely to speak to you. So let's start by talking about the role of the Fatherhood Institute in particular and why research into fatherhood is such an important area. Well, when we started off, which was actually two decades ago, we realised ahead of the trend, I think, that it was absolutely central to gender equality that fathers be playing an equal role in the care of, uh, of their young children. We also knew there was a big body of research on child development even at that stage which showed the positive impact on children of more time spent with fathers. I mean, it wasn't even quality. It was just time uh, that that was the big thing. So high levels of father involvement, meaning father engagement with their children uh, one-on-one. And then over time, there has been quite a lot of research, not as much, on the impact of involved fatherhood on men. So in terms of their longevity, in terms of their mental health, uh, in terms of developing all kinds of skills that come along with parenting, you know, deferring um, present pleasure for future gain, all those kind of things. So we think it's a win-win and that we needed to bring fathers into the picture. While there was a huge amount of research on fathers in the academic world, It was very much less well-known than research on mothers, and research on mothers was far more prevalent, and that has continued to be the case. So we identify the research and we bring it forward for more public view. So, I mean, broadly speaking, uh, how does sort of society and policy support or undermine this idea of positive fatherhood? Because it does kind of start there, doesn't it? And the expectations are also set up uh, socially. What are the biggest... Uh, barriers to it at the moment and, and you know, the, the expectations that need to change? Yes, I mean, culturally, it's absolutely huge. The cultural strictures, in a sense, against involved fatherhood, you know, include the various religions, including, of course, the Christian religion, which uh, has designated the Virgin Mary as the primary carer and um, God as this distant figure who uh, in the Sistine Chapel leans across to Adam and doesn't touch his hand. Mm. And so that kind of image of the father as this distant and authority figure is there still. Uh, But there have been, really since the 18th century, there have been quite strong moves to depict fathers 
or to publicize the intimate role of fathering. So there were journalists and people like that who did speak about fathers being close to their children, you know, way back in the 18th century. And that has continued. So you have always this kind of cultural battle going on between this kind of public face of fatherhood where fathers were expected or told that they should be distant. And then if you look at the diaries and the letters, that wasn't the thing. You know, even in Victorian times, the Victorian father may well have been in, in of the very sort of distant father may well have been in the minority. It's hard to tell. But certainly there were fathers who were very involved, you know, changing napkins or nappies, you know, helping wean children. I mean, this has been going on for ages. I mean, it's certainly it's certainly a narrative that that does seem to only really serve the economic uh, status quo, doesn't it? I mean, it, you know, it has massive implications if you put women as the primary carer and, and all of these sort of taboos around involved fatherhood. But I wanted to ask you, just uh, even in the modern day, you know, obviously we we still have that that very implicit assumption that women will do the bulk of the childcare, the bulk of the domestic labour. Do you think we've over-fetishised the role of the mother uh, and that, that we still do? And and that actually that's to the detriment of women. You know, a lot of women kind of buy into this, um, mm. this idea as well. Uh, and that it's actually a balanced family, you know, with equal weighting around, you know, who looks after the children that is actually one of the key uh, drivers for gender equality. The fetishization of motherhood is a huge thing. There's a wonderful book by um, the French journalist and writer Elizabeth Badinter, who wrote a book called The Myth of Motherhood, which mm. was very striking, I found. Uh, and, and she talks about how the, the mothers had to be persuaded that this was their primary role. So you'd had children being taken care of by nannies in upper-class families. No, no one thought it was a bad mother if she had that kind of help. Um, you had working class women who were taking their babies around with them, but you wanted them to stay at home. You wanted them, as industrialization progressed particularly, you wanted to make reproduction the mother's domain mm -hmm. because you wanted to free the men up uh, to go out and do their thing so that only the mother could do it. You know, And there was health reasons, you know. Babies died. And you did want to encourage breastfeeding. You know, it wasn't altogether a bad thing. It served an economic purpose, and that became more marked uh, during what the great Peter Lazar called, you know, the process of modernization, by which he means industrialization. And Lazlet said that, that the most dramatic thing that happened to the family during the process of modernization was the removal, and he uses that word, the removal of breadwinners, usually the father, from the household for all of the working day. This whole idea that fathers and mothers and men and women and children all kind of mixed up together, you know, gradually start to separate out. So you've got uh, the father mainly as the mothers went back in from the factories into the homes, good health reasons. Babies wouldn't die so much. Mm. Um, and children then, you know, came the Education Acts. So children were taken out of the factories too. And then the trade unions were very much emphasising the role of the breadwinner, the role of the role of the family wage, that one person, the man, could make enough money to support his family. Now, of course, working class women have always worked. 
you know, my mother-in-law in the tenements of Glasgow, you know, they took in washing. <laughs> you know, these women were never without things to do. They brewed beer inside their own homes. They did all this stuff. So it's not true that sort of women didn't work. Of course they did. But the main breadwinner wage and the one that required the greatest health sacrifices was the man's. I was struck by Margaret Mead. I, I read some of her work. You know, she was writing about the 1930s. And uh, what she said was that no developing society, meaning no society that's on the make, trying to conquer other countries, you know, like, like the West has been, no developing society ever lets men in to handle or touch their newborns because if they did, the men wouldn't leave. They wouldn't be prepared to go out and be killed in war and they wouldn't be prepared to travel the seas and conquer other countries. That, that keeping men apart from their infants is the first step in their purposeful alienation. Well, that's very profound and, and powerful, isn't it? I mean, it, you know, I was just going to say that, you know, these putting it in a historical context, putting most things in a historical context is usually a very, very important thing to do because, you know, these are these are the structures, the stories, the the alienations that become normalized and then they become internalized. And then you don't even really realize what's going on, do you? So you, you make all these sort of assumptions, you set your lives up in certain ways, policy follows that, etc. Yeah. I want just to come to the work of the Fatherhood Institute in terms of, would you say that the work that you do is part of the fight back against that normalization? You know, that in raising the, the realities of situations through research, through campaigning, that you can get people, governments, mothers, fathers to think again and to challenge what has been you know, a status quo for, what would we say, sort of maybe 100 years now? Yes, definitely. It has been part of, as you describe, a fight back. But it was already happening in families. So, so in lots of ways, families have been far in advance of policy. I cannot think of a study which hasn't shown that, that variability. So we were part of, if you like, the fight back on behalf of families, I think, who were saying this is not really our lives, you know, we're not divided into these very strong gender roles as much as you think we are. There's obviously great positives to engaged fatherhood for both men and women uh, in terms of, you know, family life, uh, women in the workplace, et cetera, et cetera. You know, yet, of course, for example, the UK's current parental leave system is the most gendered in the world, I think I read on your website. Mm -hmm. um, you know, <laughs> it's obvious that policy isn't really keeping pace with the demand, would you say? And I mean, we'll go on to talk about the lockdown and how that might have possibly acted as an accelerant. But mm -hmm. where, where were we kind of before that happened and, and, and why? Right. So where we were before that happened was that even in the uh, in the UK, which, as you say, has had uh, very gendered parenting leave systems, we've seen fathers on the average working day increase their time directly spent engaging with their young children by about 20 minutes a decade. And that's a lot. Over time, since the 1970s, when you measure that kind of input, you see that happening. So fathers have been increasing it. The way they've increased their time 
uh, with their children has not been you know, through working shorter hours or through shorter commutes because they don't, they not at all. They've done it by trimming time off personal leisure, by trimming time off sleep, and by conducting personal leisure at home. So, I mean, this was a men's leisure, not just fathers. Men's leisure during the 20th century moved into the home. You know, homes became more comfortable. You didn't have to go down the pub. You brought the beer home in the most and watched the match at home in the most extreme ways. Young men stopped playing golf all day Saturday, you know. So that kind of thing had been narrowing the gender care gap. Um, mothers had more mechanization of housework, of course, women and mothers, and that helped them. So they were kind of re- reducing their input in a strange kind of way, certainly in the home job generally, and fathers, men and fathers were increasing theirs. So you had both a gender housework gap diminishing and a gender care gap diminishing. Uh, however, by about 2014-15, there was an indication from one very influential study, the Multinational Time Use Study, that uh, that this gender revolution had stalled. So the fathers hadn't, in you know, the gender care gap hadn't reduced much in the five years since, or five or ten years since they'd gathered the data previously, and they were a bit worried about this. It's clear, they had said, that we've reached the limit of possibilities in terms of fathers nipping time off all their active other activities what has to change is their engagement with the workplace because over that period fathers engagement with the workplace had barely changed you know 90% of them were in employment in paid work most of them full time the the percentages working part time reduced hours were not greater. I mean, not, they were increasing, but they weren't huge, you know, mm. weren't hugely increasing. So they said something has to happen to the workplace or we're not going to get there. We're not going to get any further. And at that stage, fathers of young children were doing about a third of the childcare. In, in some studies, to, moving more towards half, but mainly a third. Two hours for mum, one hour for dad. And of course, largely this was to do with their engagement with the workplace and and the mother's lack of engagement with the workplace. Everyone sort of says, oh, well, mothers would be working more if, you know, it's it's all a fault of the men. But it's not. You know, it's a fault of the whole structures, which don't make it easy for both parents to work Uh, full-time or work longer hours. So you've got about a quarter of mothers in any study not in paid work at all, you know, and then another big tranche of them working part-time. You talk about the, the, you know, the structures. Give me an idea of, of, you know, some of the most pervasive uh, structures that push men and women into these roles. It starts, of course, with the birth of the child, where in this country the mother has 52 weeks guaranteed leave. Um, Nine months of that is paid. Six weeks of that is very well paid. The rest of it's paid at rubbish levels, but it is still paid. And the father has two weeks, which is the paternity leave, which is taken at the same time as the mum. So that is really, it's really a health and safety leave, paternity leave, just like maternity leave is. Maternity leave in the early, you know, first three months is about recovery from the birth more than anything else. And the father being at home for two weeks after the birth is about supporting the mother to to recover. Of course, bonding goes along with that. You know, bonding with the infant is part can be part of that, but that's not its fundamental purpose. 
what you really need is for fathers to have an independent right to time off from work to care for their children alone full time. That's what works. Now, we have this thing called shared parental leave, which is a misnomer. It's transferred maternity leave. The mother owns the leave and she can, in some circumstances, if she and her partner both fulfill quite stringent uh, employment criteria, she can transfer part of that maternity leave, her first year, to, to the father. That's really uh, appalling because only about three out of seven couples qualify. So when one asks, well, why do not many fathers take it up or not many mothers transfer their leave to their partner, the first reason is that loads of them aren't even eligible. Mm. And secondly, it's incredibly complicated to do this. People don't know about it. HR departments don't even necessarily give their the parents who ask about it the right information. Quite, it's really tough. And then the main reason, apart from its ineligibility, the second main reason is that it is so badly paid. So the mother transfers some of her maternity leave to the to the dad, and he's eligible, and there he is. He could take it. His employer only has to pay him at £149 a week. So when you look at a country where, you know, they've started to make inroads into this very gendered and... Um, that situation. Well, obviously, everyone talks about Scandinavia. Um, Iceland is the leading country, actually, that's achieved this. Uh, they've been very strict. I think they're now five months for mum, five months for dad, and two months for the family to share. So th- even if the mother takes the two months for the family to share, she's still at seven months and he's still at five. Five, yeah. Now, that's substantial because what they have is a low differential, if you like, between the leave available to the parents. Uh, and when you have that low differential, an employer looks at them and thinks, well, he's going to be off work if they have a baby, you know, mm, mm. and so is she. So maternity discrimination is dealt with in one blow. Sweden's hugely successful compared to us but it hasn't transformed things. And that's because they left the mothers able to take um, a great deal of well-paid leave. And so there's potentially a, a strong differential. So they, I think they have three months, I might be out of date, something like three months mum, three months dad, reserved leave, that if the mum doesn't use it or the father doesn't use his, it's lost to the family. They can't transfer it, you know, like in our in our system, to be transferred mm. from the mother. So it's non-transferable, and that's key. Um, but there's also still a lot of other leave that the family can share, which is normally taken by mothers, because when you do that, that's the default, because of the culture, because of employers, because of women giving birth, all sorts of things. You'll get this kind of waiting where the mothers take it. As soon as you've got the mothers, you know, likely to take 11 months, and the father likely to date three, well... You set up the imbalance, don't you? And, of course, everyone says, oh, but the mothers have to recover from the birth, which they absolutely do. And as I've said, the early leave really is about recovery. So if you look at Iceland again, you know, the mother could take her leave straight after the birth, and mostly will, and there's a recovery thing going on there. 
the father will take his later in the year to care for children. That's how you bring equality. And you don't say, oh, they're not the same. She's giving birth, so we have to give her more. You say, no, we, it just has to be timed differently, really. Let's talk about COVID lockdowns then. So COVID has in some ways redrawn expectations perhaps not for shared parental leave, but but certainly for, you know, gender division of labour at home. I mean, in some ways, it's reinforced gender division of labour at home and the expectations. So, you know, it's been a mixed bag. Um, you uh, at the Institute, you did a study called Lockdown Fathers on this. And I'm just interested to find out what your most surprising findings were. And for you, what the most important findings were. The way mothers and fathers and men and women even engage in home-based work it did not throw the burden back on mothers. That, that, just like this lockdown, has not been about mothers or women losing their jobs. There's a recent thing out from the ONS which is showing this really clearly. I reviewed all the studies. Fundamentally, everyone predicted, and that's what got the headlines, that, oh, women and mothers was going to throw everything back, right? And then they would report their findings and say, mothers were doing more during lockdown. Now, what those narratives did was to reinforce the idea that nothing you did could bring about change in terms of gender relation. Very, very damaging. And they twisted their findings to give you that narrative. Some of the researchers, I would say, actively did this. Not the researchers so much as the organizations that used their research twisted them. Yes, mothers did more during lockdown. Mothers were doing more before lockdown right? They were far less engaged in the workplace, either in terms of hours spent or whether they were engaged in the workplace at all before the lockdown. That continued pretty well undiminished. There was a couple of studies showed a slight likelihood in the early lockdown of mothers being, you know, reducing their hours a bit more than fathers did to cope with childcare. But trust me, it was not much. They made the most of it. And then as, as the ONS has shown over time, you know, that 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 was not happening. So what what did happen? And you know, it was the story was not told. And that's why we called our study Lockdown Fathers the Untold Story. We I did review all the other studies because I had to know what was going on. And so we looked at them and we found that while mothers continued to do more because they had done more beforehand, fathers more than doubled their input into childcare. They narrowed the gender care gap. Almost all the studies show some narrowing of the gender care gap. And what they found was that before lockdown, the dads in their samples were doing about 34% of the mother's care. Then they found that during the first lockdown, the father's input had shot up to 69% of the, of the mother's input. So they'd gone up to two-thirds, right? Mm. They looked again, I think it's later in 2020 or beginning of 2021, and they found that the father's share had dropped back to about 50%. So it, it, it had dropped back to half. It had gone up to two-thirds, and before lockdown, it had been a third. So... That's a, an interesting pattern. You know, it's going to take a great deal to keep even that 
Let me just ask you uh, before we talk about that. Do you feel that then the um, the, the sort of restrictions and limitations and, and changes of the pandemic have been a step forward for the experience of, of fatherhood as a whole? Yes. So that so it has been the most enormous step forward. You remember the researchers that looked at time youth said that the, something had to change in terms of fathers' engagement with the workplace mm. if we were going to continue on the road towards gender equality, and that's of course what happened. So. Uh, three quarters of the fathers fundamentally in our study and it's representative and found in other studies when the first lockdown hit about three quarters of them were at home full time so they were furloughed they'd lost their jobs not that many at that stage had lost their jobs mainly furloughed or working from home and then you had 27 percent who were still going out to work that's of men who'd been in paid work beforehand that changed everything. There you have, in a way, the return to the pre-industrial cottages, you know. Uh, the daddies came home in, in these huge numbers. This was an extraordinary thing, an extraordinary natural experiment and transformative. So what we did was to uh, ask them, it's a 33 questions in a questionnaire, a survey that went out to a representative sample through a polling organisation of fathers for children under 12. We asked them all about their partners and their own working patterns. We were able to see what had happened. That is the father's report, but they are probably pretty good on working patterns. We asked them about mental health. Uh, we asked them about physical health. We asked them about their relationships with their children. We asked them about time spent with their children. We asked them about various um, activities. What, what did they do during this time? And then we had uh, various types of fathers. We were able to break it down by social, socioeconomic class. And we were able to break it down by ethnicity. We also had a very interesting sample, a sort of semi-purposeful sampling, really, of gay fathers, two men raising a child together full-time, you know, a baby. We had 156 of those. And what they reported was also very interesting. So we had that overall, I can just say that even some of the fathers who continued to go out to work, a lower percentage of those, but still many, emerged from lockdown feeling closer to their children, feeling that they more confident in helping them with their schoolwork. Interestingly, the ones who'd spent the most time with their children, who of course tended to be the fathers who'd been at home full time, uh, were the most likely. You talked earlier, you know, that th th there has been a slight drop, but you know, obviously big gains how do we keep it going? There's evidence, I'm told, of, of kind of an uptick in fathers asking for flexible, more flexible working and home working and stuff. So what was achieved was achieved only through more time spent. You know, it's nothing else. It was just that children and their fathers were exposed to each other in more hours of the day, even if the fathers were working outside the home, because when they came home, the kids were all there. So this increase in time brought about transformation in relationships. It also brought about transformation in attitudes and beliefs so that the fathers came out of it, very high percentages of them saying, I now know better than I did before why it's important that fathers spend time with their children. Uh, I now know better than before what it takes to run a household and look after children. And that was associated with fathers with reporting um, better relationship with their partners, which, of course, makes sense. 
what it means is we have to somehow maintain gains in time. We're likely to be able to do this for the more advantaged fathers because in our sample, only 3% of the, you know, the fathers in the lowest socioeconomic groups were able to work, to work from home, only 3%, and you had, you know, 70-odd percent in some of the other groups. So some remote working, remote working has advantages because it saves time spent on commuting and also because in not, not all jobs but many of the ones that are at-home desk-based or in the locality desk-based if they want to move out to a, a local workplace, what you get there is flexibility. So some some fathers are on calls and mothers are on calls all day. They have barely any flexibility from nine till five. But the vast majority do. They have gaps. They can stop. They can come out and change a nappy, um, and they do. They can uh, postpone their start time slightly by taking the kids to school once lockdown eased, and they did. Fathers will be out and about more with their children if a substantial percentage continue to work remotely from home for even part of the time. Fathers already drop kids off at school. What fathers don't do is pick them up. Mm. And what we see is more fathers picking them up, having done a lot of work and scheduled it, the rest of it for the evening. You know? So that would, that could change things if, if there are enough fathers out and about. Uh, and then the flexibility, of course, uh, is important and that you'll want some flexibility. Some fathers say in our, in our study that they felt they could discuss working shorter hours once we went back, working with their employer, talking with their employer about shorter hours. They could at least have the conversation. A lot of fathers would like to knock four or five hours off their week and feel they could afford it. It'll be interesting to see what happens with the hybrid working transition as well. And, and if that is embraced by businesses, that could provide, as you say, that that, that space and that time for, for men and for women, actually, yeah, yeah. Um, to sort of be in the home and be in the office. So I'm going to just ask you um, to sort of sum up you know, what the change is that you would like to see in, in the way that society sort of understands and supports fathers and, and fatherhood? And, and, you know, perhaps even how men see fatherhood themselves and uh, whether you feel positive for the future. I would like to see a better parental leave system that doesn't alienate fathers from the beginning and send them off into the wilds, you know. So something more along some of the Swedish models, just thinking about that is absolutely crucial. That sets a culture as well. Uh, I would like us to be aware when children's books are being written that, for example, fathers cuddling and kissing their children are there, but they're far less there and caring for their children are far less there, whether it's a daddy bear or whatever it is, than females are. So it's being aware of that if we're writing that sort of stuff. Um, not try sort of honing in just on fathers who are at home full-time, you know, this kind of out-of-date model, looking really at and, and exploring and making visible the very complex ways in which mothers and fathers box care, you know. And I'd love to see that more publicised. I would love to see the narrative um, that everything's terrible for women and nothing men do will ever be good enough. I'd love to see that knocked out the ballpark. Because the, the belief that fathers somehow didn't step up and that mothers were doing it all over lockdown is so is such a downer for families who know they've been doing things differently, but they just kind of then think, oh, well, we must have been the odd ones out. Obviously, 
most dads weren't doing this. But the main changes, I think, and the ones that are more possible, because I don't think our government's going to look at parental leave anytime soon. I think that a lot is going to be down to employers. Some employers now you are, are joining a band of employers who are giving equal substantial paid leave to new fathers and mothers, independent, use it or lose it, but all their all their people get it. So that's that's increasing. And I think but in ten years that's going to be the norm. And in the fight for talent, and it is a fight for talent, they, they need uh, to be doing that. But it's not just that. Also, that will help reduce their gender pay gap. So if we make it clear to employers that this supporting men's fatherhood and care activities is good for their recruiting of talent and the, and the retention of talent, it, you know, among women as well, women love to stay with an organisation where they see care taking is being depicted as for men and women. So, so there's those kind of arguments will help. And then on top of that, you've got looking at the hybrid working model. If we just see all or mainly women taking that up, taking up home working and more flexible working, then what we see is a nail in the coffin of gender equality. Because if only or mainly women do it, then the stigma that is already there has been before lockdown, a huge stigma against shorter hours working, working from home, that will be reinforced. It won't just be there, it'll be reinforced and the guys will go back to the office. But if substantial numbers of fathers and men use the hybrid working model and it's made clear and the companies promote it to them, don't just say parents, say mothers and fathers, we want you to do this. We will support you to do this. What are your needs? Adrienne Burgess, thank you for joining us. Be my pleasure. Every Woman is a global platform for women in business that drives positive change by empowering women to achieve their professional potential. Visit everywoman.com to discover how we're advancing women in business and inspiring a generation of future female leaders. For every woman, everywhere.